so good. Hey, just on behalf of Vanessa and our family, again, we just want to say thank you for loving on us. We were not expecting any of that, and so uh, just a, a welcomed surprise. You know, I'll, I'll share this, that, that when, we, when we're with other pastors, whether it's at conferences, we were with some uh, just this week on Thursday. There was a Elam Fellowship, the group that we're connected to, held its first uh, equip day for this region for other credential holders and churches in this, in this area and, uh, and got together for some leadership training. And even in that setting, we were interacting with pastors that were, that were talking about the, the extent that they have to go to build relationships outside of their churches to, 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 to have some body that's safe for them to talk to about the struggles that they have in life. And it, when Vanessa and I are in those conversations, we cannot be more disconnected from that need. We couldn't be more disconnected from that need. The, the, the relationships that we have found here, the other nucleus leaders that are here, there's nothing that in our lives that we don't feel safe to talk to people about in our own church. So, so as, as you're uh, giving us the privilege to lead you, we want to say thank you for caring for us and being there for us and uh, having those kinds of relationships of, of trust. So, and whenever two kids both call you cool and awesome, it's a good day, right? It's a good day. It's a good day. Come on. So, so have, you, have you ever been in your child's room and found something you weren't expecting to find? Yeah. Were your parents ever in your room when you were growing up and found something they weren't expecting to find, right? Yeah? So, so today... I, this morning, one of, my, one of my jobs, right, pastors, we have jobs. We do. We, we have to-do lists at our house, too. And so one of my to-do lists was we got a new router for our cable and internet service. And so one of my jobs was to install that today. And, and so in order to do that, we have a signal repeater up in the upstairs that, right, it's a router that takes the signal from the router downstairs and puts it in the, in the upstairs. So, and we keep that in Claire's room because that's in the central part of the upstairs, and so I'm, I'm up there. In order to do this, you have to reset the router. And of course, you know, the hole to reset the router is, is, is the most minuscule hole that you could ever find. And so I'm thinking, what can I find in her room that I can use to press the reset button? So I go over to her dresser, because I'm thinking there's gonna be an earring with a backing on it, right? I didn't damage anything, I promise. So, so to, to reset it, and while I was there on her dresser, this is what I found on top of her dresser. How great is that? Right? I mean, I was so proud of Claire that there on the top of her dresser, where we're in this series on stewardship and generosity. I'm there in my teenager's room, and on top of her dresser, there's money with a post-it note on it that says tithe. So you go, Claire. Come on. Come on. <laughs> proud of her. And she had a friend over today, and they were working for their trunk or treat decoration, and her friend brought me a six-pack of Coke in a bottle. So... Good for you. Come on. All right. Come on. So, so around the middle of the day, I was, I was getting ready. I was a little bit later getting to the office. They had been fighting this chest cold all week, and so I was resting a little bit longer this morning. And just plan, I'll just get to, to the church a little bit later. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm in the bathroom, and I'm, you know, getting ready, brushing my teeth, and all, you know, all the stuff that you're doing to be presentable to other people, and, and, uh, and so I'm standing there looking in the mirror, and, and I feel like God speaks to me, and he says, I want you to talk about Joseph in Potiphar's house today for your sermon. And I'm this, so, you know, I'm having this conversation with God. God, I already have a sermon that I put together. Right? We're, 
we're in a series, you know? We did the four heart questions, and now it's time we have to do the four money questions, right? And so I'm, I'm having this conversation, and God says, I want you to talk about Joseph and Potiphar's house as part of your study. And I'm like, I haven't done any study on Joseph and Potiphar's house for, you know, for a message. And it's today, you know? And we're in a series. And, and then I'm going through, right? I'm having this conversation with God and all the weeks that are lined up and how the stewardship series is supposed to go through Thanksgiving. And then I want to start a series on the gifts of the Spirit for December. And so I'm presenting my case, right? God says, I want you to talk about Joseph and Potiphar's house as part of your stewardship and generosity series. And so and, and it was in that moment that all of a sudden just the story of Joseph, just it was like a film just began to play through my mind's eye and, and the Holy Spirit just began to drop these principles in my heart. Just, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to brush my teeth, God. Come on, you know? And so, this, so I think to myself, you know, this, maybe this is for a series for another time, or maybe this series is supposed to be extended. And so, you know, I, you know just like your kids do to you, I'm kind of like putting my fingers in my spiritual ears, like, I don't want to hear this right now. And so I'm about halfway here in my car, and, and um, so God speaks to me. He says, you you're going to talk about Joseph and Potiphar tonight? I'm like, God, it's 2 o'clock, right? The service starts at 5. And I kid you not, this is what he says to me. I'm giving you three hours, right? you got three hours. What more do you need to do? So we're going to talk about Joseph and Potiphar as part of our series on stewardship and generosity tonight. And so if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to get to the four money questions that follow up the four heart questions at some point in our foreseeable future, right? This is one of the reasons why we do live teaching and live worship at our, all of our campuses and all the campuses that we're going to plan in our future, live teaching and live worship. Because sometimes God's in your planning and then sometimes the planning that you found God in, he changes that. And so we always want to have a service that's nimble enough to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the moment. This series that we're in for, for stewardship and generosity, it's entitled Treasures in Heaven because in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us this command, right? He says, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks, store up your treasures in heaven. And so this series is connected to that statement to say, okay, if, if he gives us this command, then, then what are the practical things that you and I need to do in order to be faithful in that command? Treasures in heaven, as we talked about last week, it's not our motivation, it's our revelation. Right? If it's our motivation, then we're only doing it for what's in it for us. But it's our revelation in the sense that the treasures in heaven are, are less about the prize and more about the place where those prizes are so that we have an internal mindset in this natural world. All right, Genesis 37. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We're going to, we're going to read some, some pretty substantial chunks of text together tonight to, in case someone here is not familiar with the story. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where... His father had lived as a foreigner, and this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks, and he worked for his half-brothers and the sons of his father's wives, Bela and Zillipah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing, right? Jacob's a tattletale. Jacob loved jo Joseph more than any of his other children, right? So now there's parenting problems, right? This is a very dysfunctional home. Joseph had been born... To him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made just for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. One night Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, 
They hated him even more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundles stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. See, not things you want to share with people that despise you. His brothers responded, so you think you're going to be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers, right? He's not learning his lesson. Again, he told him about, listen, I have had another dream. He said, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time, he told the dream to his father as well, as his brothers and his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while Joseph and his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what these dreams meant. This first principle is that stewardship must resist the arrogance of favor. Stewardship must resist the arrogance of favor. Favor is not distributed to us equally. We've been talking about in this series that all of us have a material destiny. And part of what's connected to that material destiny is the favor of God. And part of the favor of God is connected to how faithful we are in our stewardship and our generosity. But there's another part of the favor of God that's completely disconnected to our faithfulness. So there's these two streams of favor that are pouring into our lives. This first stream is connected to our faithfulness, and this other stream is connected to our destiny. The measure of favor that you and I have that we receive is to fuel and fund the destiny that we've been given. All of us are not going to have the same measure of favor in our lives. The temptation can be that when we have an abundance of favor, that there's an arrogance that rises up in our heart that we're somehow better than other people. Stewardship must resist the arrogance of favor. Listen to these verses in Malachi 3, 8 through 12. It says, should people cheat God, yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And God says, you have cheated me with tithes and offerings. Do me, you're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do so, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. These are big promises. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. It's the only time in the Bible that God says the testament has to do with stewardship and generosity. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for the land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God makes great promises to us, to you, to me, in regards to our stewardship and our generosity. And there is a principle that we find in Scripture that whenever there is a great promise from God, there is temptation that soon follows. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Whenever there is a great promise, there is temptation that will follow. Because the devil is going to do everything that he can to impede our destiny. He knows that he doesn't have the power to stop it. But we have the power to resist the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we begin to resist the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we begin to slow down the, the outworking of the destiny that we've been called to live. And he uses temptation to do it. Genesis chapter 3. The great promise that Adam and Eve were given to live in a perfect place, temptation will soon to follow. 
Matthew chapter 4, at Jesus' baptism and the launching of his ministry, God himself, right, the heavens open, the people hear this thunderous voice that says, this is my son that I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 4, it starts with temptation. Where there are great promises, there is temptation soon to follow. Listen to Daniel 4, 27 to 37. Daniel 4, 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. And you can read in the first part of 4 as Daniel interprets his dream to tell Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen. And 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Listen to this. And as he looked out across the city, he said, the arrogance of favor right here. Look at this great city of Babylon by my own mighty power. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. See, there was even favor on a pagan king and a pagan nation because they too had a destiny that was integrally tied to the story of Israel. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdom and the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. This is not hyperbole. This is history. He ate grass like a cow, and he was... He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagles. It's the first mention of a werewolf right here in the Bible. His nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned. This is powerful stuff. And I praised and I worshiped the Most High. And I honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. And all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and my glory and my kingdom. And my advisors and, the, and my nobles sought me out and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Stewardship must resist the arrogance of favor. In between arrogance and false humility is something called authenticity. See, if we're not careful, we'll get caught into the extreme, right? It is it, in my journey of stewardship and, and, and generosity when I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing the favor of God because of reciprocity and also because of my divine destiny. I can find myself in this place where, where I'm tempted by arrogance that, that I'm doing such a great job. Right? And then there's this place of false humility like we talked about last week. If, if we're not careful, then, then we'll, we'll discount the part that we play. And discounting the part that we play in the journey is a false humility. But God calls us to a place of authenticity. Authenticity is a huge part of who we are at this church. 
One of the reasons why authenticity is a huge part of who we are in this church is not, not only is it a, one of the 24 virtues that we teach and proclaim, but authenticity, it, in the leadership training we were at this week, uh, Pastor Chris Ball, who's the president of Elam Fellowship, did a teaching on generations. It was powerful. He talked about the millennial generation, but then he talked about the generation that's coming after the millennials. And for that generation, the most important quality that they're looking for in people everywhere, regardless of the situation and the circumstances, authenticity. And one of the reasons why that group of people and the millennials before them are leaving churches by droves is because they're not finding authenticity in the place that should be establishing it for the rest of the world. The younger generation, they don't always need you to be right. They don't need you to be perfect. They don't even need you to be relevant. What they need from us is to be authentic, to be true and transparent. And in this journey of stewardship and generosity, we're going to resist the arrogance of favor and we're going to walk in authenticity. If you want to write down this author's name, his name is Tim Elmore, E-L-M-O-R-E, Tim Elmore, Pastor Chris referenced him. He's got a whole series of books that talks about generations and the virtues that they're looking for. If you've got teenagers in your home, you should check out some of these resources. Tim Elmore. I'm going to make Celeste nervous and put one of the more of these cough drops in my mouth. After the service last week, she said, you make me so nervous because I'm afraid you're going to choke on that. I told us the only redeemable thing about growing up in Verina as a country boy and chewing tobacco and dipping snuff all through high school and college that I can talk with a cough drop in my mouth and I'm okay. So maybe I'll just put it down here in my lip like this. I'll make it feel better. Authenticity and transparency right there. More than you'd like. Genesis 39, 1 through 6. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar. Now, just to fill in the gap for the sake of time, because this is such a long story in Scripture, Joseph's brothers are so upset and enraged with him that they throw him into a, a, a dried-up well. And their plan was that they were going to come back and kill him. And Judah and Reuben kind of come to his rescue and, and talk the other brothers out of not killing him. And they end up selling him uh, to a caravan of Ishmaelites. And they, so they sell him as, as a slave. And then they take his, his robe and they put some animal blood on it. They take it back to his father and say that they found this robe. And now the father believes that his favorite son has been killed by a wild animal. If you think you have sibling problems in your house, you should read this story, right? So when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Now Potiphar was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served his master in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. And he put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and his livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave, listen to this, Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. This man is the captain of the guard for, uh, for Pharaoh, who's over one of the greatest empires in history. While Joseph was there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food that he would eat. The 
going to switch to this. Stewardship must never use circumstance as an excuse. Stewardship must never use circumstance as an excuse. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, who in turn fabricated a story that he was dead from being killed by a wild animal in the field. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I probably would have taken a little bit of time to feel sorry for myself before I started working hard for my new master, whose relationship was started by me being sold to them as a slave. Right? The Bible gives us no reference that Joseph spent any time feeling sorry for himself. Stewardship can never use circumstance as an excuse to not serve God. You and I face difficult circumstances in this life. How many times in that circumstance have, has it caused you to feel like if God would do a better job of taking care of me, I would do a better job of taking care of things for him? How many times have, have we felt that if God would give me more, I would be more faithful? As we look around and we see the resources that are entrusted to other people, how many times have we said to ourselves, if God gave me more, I would do a better job? with what I have. But more will never come with, to that attitude. Luke 16, 10 says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest in great responsibilities either. More comes through being faithful with what we have in the moment. It might not be the more that other people have, but it will be the more that God has entrusted to you because there's always more that's part of your material destiny. If God would take better care of me, if I had more, I would do more. How about if God had kept his promise to me, I would be more faithful to him. Is there anybody here today that feels like God made you a promise about something and he's not kept it yet and you've thought to yourself, I'm not going to work harder in my Christianity, especially my stewardship and my generosity, God, because you're not keeping your end of the bargain. You're not fulfilling the promise that you have for me. Joseph had some promises. His promises were pretty big. His promises were visions. He knew that they were visions from God. He knew that God had a part in his future where he was going to be a ruler over his family. He had a vision. He had a promise from God that one day his family would bow before him. But now, right, he's a slave in an Egyptian's home. You, you cannot find a greater chasm between a reality and a promise is in this story. But yet there's no indication that Joseph used his circumstance as an excuse to not work hard in dealing with a situation that was in front of him. Sometimes the circumstance we struggle with isn't external. Sometimes the circumstance we struggle with is internal. This idea that if God would take better care of me or if I, had, could do, if I had more, I could do more, or if God would keep his promise, these are external circumstances, right? But sometimes the circumstance that we deal with is internal. 
But Thursday, I was doing a session at the Equip Day, and, and I was telling a story while I was there about how, how biases can blind us. And, and it was on Wednesday. We had a finance team meeting on, on Wednesday night, and so I had just stayed through. And so I, I hopped in my, in my truck, and I was heading out just looking for a drive through and, and Claire was here early for, uh, Claire's getting a lot of attention in the sermon tonight, isn't she? So Claire, Claire was here early for RC, and, and so she had brought her dinner with her, and she heated up a hamburger in the microwave in the office, so the whole office smelled like a hamburger. I was like, I am so hungry for a hamburger right now. So I'm going out, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I want to go get a hamburger and a milkshake and some fries and, and, uh, cause I eat healthy that way. And, and, and so I'm, I'm heading down work Boulevard and I'm going to the closest Wendy's that I know. So right at the corner of Nettles and Work Boulevard, right, there's a fast food restaurant. And for some reason, in my mind, I'm convinced that this is a Wendy's, even though the sign out front says Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell. This is a true story. I'm not making any of this up. And so, so I, I saw the Kentucky Fried Chicken sign, but I didn't see the Taco Bell. So I thought, you know, because sometimes they're dual, right, dual locations. So I thought maybe now it's a KFC and a Wendy's, right? I have vivid, in my, in my brain, I can think that I can remember times where I've gone through there and gotten Wendy's. So I, it's busy, right? It's dinner time. There's a line. I'm sitting there going through the line. There's, right, there's signs everywhere. There's not Wendy's on any of those signs. I'm looking around, I'm on my phone, scrolling Facebook, looking up, right? There's Taco Bell, there's tacos, and there's chicken. And so it's my turn, I get up to the window. And I lean out, I kid you not, right? I'm looking for the Wendy's part of the menu. And there's a long pause. And the poor teenager, right, that's on the other side says, you're going to be looking for a long time. <laughs> then there's this hipster, right? He's got the goatee and wearing some beanie on a summer day. And this is what he does. He looks at me. He's like, bro, this is a Taco Bell and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right? And he's thinking, and you know what he's thinking? This guy should not be driving. All right? <laughs> He's been somewhere drinking all day, and who knows what else, and he's looking for him. I drive away. Drive away. Convinced that it was a Wendy's the day before, and they've changed it overnight, right? As I drive away, I'm just, I'm confused. I'm thinking to myself, when did that stop being a Wendy's? So over the next couple of days, I was talking to people that lived here, and they said, Fred, never. It's never been a Wendy's. I'm like, no, you're wrong, right? Because this is what biases do. Right? You can remember things that aren't real. You can believe things that aren't true. And then we'll hold on to that bias. And, and even when truth is presented to us that has a self-evidencing quality that rises to the place of being more obvious than anything else in our lives, we're still convinced that we're right and others are wrong. You and I do this in our relationship with God all the time. There are biases that have entrenched in us because of things that we've been taught that are not true. There are biases against the church and sometimes teaching, especially when it comes to stewardship and giving and money because other people have manipulated us in poor ways. And so we adopt this bias that now we don't want to hear anything, even if it's true about what God expects of me of stewardship and generosity and my material resources. Too often the circumstance of our bias is that our natural mind refuses to think on a spiritual plane. Too often the circumstance of our bias is that our natural mind refuses to think on a spiritual plane. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 16 says, But the rulers of this world have not understood it. 
If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what Scripture means when they say, No eye has seen, no ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love them. It's quoted out of Isaiah. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except the person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the spirit of this world. right? The people who have made a vow of devotion to Christ it's talking about. So we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. And when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual things. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about people who have a bias of a natural mind refusing to think on a spiritual plane. But people who aren't spiritual, right, who've not made a vow of devotion to Christ and the Holy Spirit's not in them, right, they're a victim of their own natural mind. There's, there's no hope for them. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. One of the greatest struggles that we have when we read this Bible, when it comes to stewardship and generosity, when it comes to to material possessions, one of the great biases that we have against is that less with God's favor and blessing is more than the whole without God's favor and blessing. This idea that the Bible teaches us that less with God's favor and blessing is actually mathematically more than the whole without God's favor and blessing, our natural mind cannot understand that concept. It does not make sense. It goes against everything in our humanity. But if we're going to be a devoted follower of Christ at some point, we've got to be willing to not let our natural mind be the only thing that we use to look at this book. We've got to have, as it, if we were to keep reading, talks about us having the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit inside of me. And so when the Bible makes these great claims that less with God's favor and blessing is more than the whole than without God's favor and blessing, it's something inside of me has got to resonate with the truth in that because We know that God is not limited by the principles of this natural world. Stewardship must never use circumstances as an excuse. Number three, stewardship must rely on the character that it produces. Stewardship must rely on the character it produces. Genesis 39, 6b, let's pick up there. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household, and no one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around, and when he went in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that now she is, because she's a woman scorned, and, and now she's, 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 she's embarrassed. And so she comes up with a story that she tells Potiphar that Joseph tried to force himself on her, and she had his cloak as evidence. So now Joseph, guess where he finds himself again? Falsely accused, betrayed, and now 
He's in Pharaoh's prison. Stewardship necessitates, must re, stewardship must rely on the character that it produces. Vanessa didn't know I was going to be reading this. She used this verse in her wrap-up. So this is for somebody here. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. So much of this church is built around the discipleship model we call Praxis, right? We have the website, letspraxis.com, that's dedicated to it. There's the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. The 1 is an invitation. We find it in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, where, where the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when you say yes to that, you're stepping into a journey that the Bible calls discipleship. And, and then what we say is if you accept the 1, you've got to obey the 6. And there's six foundational commands that we teach as a church that are the foundation of everything that Jesus teaches. And, and, and when if I want to obey the 6, then I've got to walk in the 12, these 12 pathways, which many people call spiritual discipline. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. And let me just read you these 24 virtues. The first one, authentic. Imagine that. Content, hospitable, truthful, persevering. Wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, Honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. 24 virtues that we believe create the portrait. If words were colors, it paints the, the portrait of the character of Christ. When I accept the one, I have to obey the six. I obey the six by walking in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. Two of the 12 are stewardship and generosity. When you're faithful in the pathways of stewardship and generosity, they produce a measure of character in your life. If you're only walking in six of, of, of those pathways, then there are certain virtues and there's a certain measure of those virtues that are going to be lacking in your life. And these virtues need to be fully abundant in our life for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because temptation is going to come for us. We talked about temptation that's directly related to stewardship and generosity, which is this idea of the, 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 the arrogance of favor, but there's all kinds of temptation that's coming after us because the devil's going to do everything that he can to derail our destiny. You and I are absolutely dependent upon character to resist temptation. Listen to Job 23, 11 through 12. Apart from Jesus, Job, you can make a pretty solid argument that he's the, the strongest person of character in all of Scripture. For I have stayed on God's paths, he says. I have followed his ways and not turned aside. I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food. Job faced some of the biggest temptations that you and I could ever face in this life. It was his character that held him steady, even in the most difficult of times. Genesis 39, 19 to 23. Genesis 39, 19 to 23. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph, he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord had, had made, the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Listen to this next principle. Stewardship necessitates a redundant process. Stewardship necessitates a redundant process. 
God is writing onto the table of Joseph's heart these principles that we're learning tonight. Proverbs 3, 6, and 7 all use this phrase about the, the truths of God's word being written on the tablet of our heart or binding them to our heart. Joseph's journey resets. Right, right when Joseph thinks it can't get any worse, he's experiencing so much success. He's been betrayed. He's been sold as a slave, right? And then he works his way up to this position of great authority. And now he's all the way back in some, in some respects, he's worse off than he was before. Because stewardship necessitates a redundant process. In order for us to get these principles really ingrained in our heart, to sear them onto our soul, God walks us through these circumstances over and over and over and over again. There's a cycle to this journey as a disciple of Christ. And those cycles are always going to include hardships. It's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as we talk about so often here at City Life, it says that all of these seasons are beautiful in their own time. Because even the difficult times are necessary, especially when it comes to stewardship and generosity. There's a redundant process that we need to go through. And, and, and we see Joseph, God just keeps resetting it for him. Now, the part where he resets it that, that, that seems like it might come as a surprise is when we get to chapter 41 and verse 9. It says, finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. Today, I've been reminded of my Pharaoh. So years have passed. He told Pharaoh some time ago, you were angry with the chief baker and me, and you imprisoned us in the palace of the captain guard. And one night, the chief baker and I each had a dream. And each dream had its own meaning. And there was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams, and he told us what each of our dreams meant. And everything happened just as he had predicted. I was restored to my position as cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole. Not so good for him. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know, right? Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. All of Egypt. The only person in this incredible empire, one of the greatest empires in history, the only person who has more authority than Joseph is Pharaoh himself. You might say, well, Fred, that doesn't seem redundant because it seems like that everything that's happened to Joseph up until this point that's taught him a lesson, it's been through hardship. But see, th this, this is part of the redundant process that can be just as dangerous. There's a lesson that we learn in lack, and there's a lesson that we learn in abundance. Because part of the temptation of stewardship that we're going to be faced are certain temptations that we face when we have nothing. But there are just as many temptations that we have to face when we have everything. And part of the redundant process is God is going to bring us through seasons of lack, and he's going to bring us through seasons of abundance, and both are there to serve the same purpose. We like this one, which is part of the reason why sometimes we're the most vulnerable in this place, is because we let our guard down. Stewardship necessitates a redundant process, the principles of stewardship and generosity that God wants us to walk in all the days of our lives. Exodus 12, 31 to 36. I'm just going to keep going here and then we'll close in prayer in just a minute. Exodus 12, 31 to 36. This is hundreds of years later. We're moving through time. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. All the plagues have played out. Charlton Heston finally has his audience. 
Pharaoh says, get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, your herds, and be gone. But bless me as you leave, he says. It's interesting, isn't it? Listen to what verse 33 says. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought we will all die. The Israelites took their bread dough before yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards and cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. And they asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. Listen to what it says. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably, favorably on the Israelites. And they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. All the wealth of Egypt left with the Israelites during the Exodus. All the wealth of Egypt left with them as they went. This last principle is that stewardship always believes that our actions are serving God's eternal purposes. Our actions are always serving God's eternal purposes. It's one of the reasons why treasures in heaven can't just be your motivation. It's got to be your revelation because we're not just in it for what God promises us. We're in it for what he's trying to do in this world. Joseph was sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers. He became the steward of Potiphar's household. He went to the height of success, back to the lowest of lows in prison. In Pharaoh, he was there for years. A promise was made to him that when, 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 that when this guy got out, that he would, he would speak up for him, and he forgot. So he was there for years longer still. People just keep letting him down. Interprets the dream, and he rises now to the height of power under Pharaoh, just Pharaoh himself. And through that, as the famine came, all of Joseph's family was brought into Egypt, which seems like a great story until you realize that God was bringing all of Joseph's family into Egypt so that as the Hebrews prospered over the next few generations and that they numbered probably in the millions and they became the enslaved workforce for Egypt. You've got to believe that Joseph was in heaven talking to God and saying, I'm not sure this is why I brought my family here when I was there, so that they could be slaves, so they could become a workforce for centuries for a pagan nation. Stewardship and generosity has got to always believe that our actions are serving an eternal purpose. All of those Hebrews and Israelites were brought to be slaves not for Egypt, but to work for the birthing of a coming nation that would be called Israel. And when those slaves left during the Exodus, all of the wealth that belonged to Egypt had been built by those slaves for centuries before them. And all of that wealth became the seed money that gave birth to the nation of Israel that would one day give birth to the Savior of the world in Jesus Christ. My stewardship and my generosity and your stewardship and your generosity, it might seem small at times, which is why stories like this are given to us. Joseph's story is, is big, but it's small in compared to the greater story of all of history. But it's given to us to challenge us and to remind us that this isn't just about us. It's not just about our treasures in heaven. It's that our story plays a part that no one else's story is going to play in the story of God in the world and the eternal destiny that he has for all of mankind. You and I have a part to play. And the faithfulness of our stewardship and generosity determines the contribution that we make to that eternal plan. Stand with me.
Listen to these verses in Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Love these words by Paul. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. And those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Father, may it be that this story of Joseph and Potiphar's house and so much of the rest of the story that we've talked about tonight, Father, I pray that these principles of stewardship, that they would begin to write themselves on the table of our own hearts. Find us faithful, God, for the part that you've given us to play in your great eternal story that's playing out in this temporal world. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.